this week as the Dolphins and Patriots game came to a close, one of the players from the Patriots decided to try to lateral the ball backwards, and it was caught by one of their big linemen who don't often get the ball, and so you could tell that he had a look on his face, you know, of like, well, what do I do now? So uh, he lumbered forward for a couple of yards, fell down, and to the naked eye, it looked like this, this big man had gotten the first down in the most glorious, probably, moment of his football life, but in truth, he failed, and he was short, and the Patriots lost the game. It's okay. They won plenty over the years. They'll get over it. Uh, but lost the game, and, uh, and that was the end. But in order for us to realize that it was the end of the game, we had to see that play from about seven, eight, nine different angles, right? They keep showing you all the different camera angles that the referees are seeing to try to figure out, is the game over? Is this big man over the line or not? We've been studying Revelation now for over a year, and what we have seen is that it has seven cycles in it, and those cycles act like seven instant replays from seven different angles, showing us one glorious world-ending play, not a lateral gone wrong that falls centimeters or inches short, but one glorious world-ending play Uh, A play that represents God's plan, God's plan from before time, which is playing out as we speak right now. And so throughout Revelation, we've been able to see from each of these different perspectives what things are like in the world and what things will be like in the world when the Lord Jesus comes back. So in cycle one, we had Jesus in the midst of the seven churches of Asia Minor, and those churches gave us a picture Not just of what was happening in Asia Minor in the first century, but with it being seven churches, it gave us a complete picture of what's happening in the church in the world until Jesus returns. And how Jesus is the only answer for his churches as they are waiting on his return. That's why he is the one in the midst of the lampstands. In the second cycle, we had a vision of heaven and the seven seals. We saw this amazing worship scene where Jesus, the slain but standing lamb, is the only one worthy to take the scroll from the one seated on the throne. And so he takes the scroll, and it's the scroll of history, and he opens its seven seals. And it shows us God's judgment in the world, and how ultimately his final judgment will come in the end, in the second coming of Christ. In the third cycle, we had the seven trumpets. Much like the seals, it was showing how God's judgment affects the world, much more focused on how it affects creation than the people in the world. We also saw how the church will suffer, and then the church will be redeemed. In the fourth cycle, which is the centerpiece of the whole book, because you've got three cycles on one side, three cycles on the other, the central drama of the whole book showed us the dragon and the woman and the child. The Savior, the child is born, and the dragon wants to devour him as soon as he's born, but he can't. Jesus ascends to heaven, right? He lives, dies, resurrects, and ascends to heaven before the dragon can get his hands on him. And so when he fails to kill the son, fails to kill the child, he turns on the woman, seeks to kill the church, Satan unleashes his beasts upon her. 
The first beast representing the governments that Satan will use to persecute the church. The second beast representing the false religions that Satan will use to persecute the church and to deceive the world. But in the end, in that fourth cycle, we saw that the world will be judged when the sickle swings. The wheat, the church, will be gathered to the Lord like a harvest. The grapes will be gathered up and put into the wine press where they will be trod upon. And that represents unbelievers. In the fifth cycle, we got another group of seven, this time the seven bulls, which focus on the end of the end, what, what the judgments in the end will be like, and how they will culminate in final judgment. And then we got to cycle six, which is this drama of the harlot and the bride, of Babylon and the new Jerusalem. And tonight we wrap up this cycle. We see the end of the penultimate section of Revelation. We see Christ emerge victorious against His enemies. With each cycle, the picture of the end has become more and more clear. The imagery has become more and more vivid. And tonight it's as clear as it can be. We see Jesus winning on the battlefield. We've seen references to judgment in general throughout the seven cycles, but as the book has progressed, it's become more specific. And tonight, as we get to the end of the sixth cycle, it's very specific. Every enemy, except the dragon, has their demise described in this text tonight. Satan's final destruction is saved for the seventh and final cycle. But tonight... The beast will fall. Tonight, the second beast, the false prophet, will fall. And tonight, everybody who follows them will fall. And the birds of death will gather. And all of this will happen under the umbrella of Christ the victor. The demise of the world is a result of the vindication of Christ. And we'll look at Christ the victorious King, and we'll look at the demise of His enemies through the lens of four names that Jesus possesses in this text. So look for the four names as I read here and see if you can find them. Revelation 11 starting, or sorry, Revelation 19 starting in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron." He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image." 
These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Father God, I pray that you would give us an understanding of your word tonight. I pray that you would give me clarity in teaching tonight. I pray that you would be with us, your people, as we learn from your word tonight, Lord. We are not worthy of the Bibles that we hold in our hands, but what a blessing it is that you have revealed yourself, that you have spoken. And so, God, give us the ears to hear, give us the eyes to see, and give us hearts to receive. And I pray that your Word would be like the rain that comes down from heaven and does not return void, but instead it would accomplish the purpose for which you sent it tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The victorious king is revealed in four names. And those names are demonstrated not just in the appearance of Christ in this passage, but in the actions of Christ in this passage. Heaven opens up in verse 11. And that is a sign that we are about to see judgment. When the door of heaven opened in chapter 4, verse 1, you saw Christ take the scroll from the right hand of the one seated on the throne, and he starts to open the seals, which reveal God's judgment in history. So heaven opens, judgment is revealed. When the temple in heaven was opened in chapter 11, verse 19, final judgment ensued. And so the temple in heaven is opened, then judgment comes. The tent of witness in heaven is opened in chapter 15, verse 5. And the seven angels emerge with the bowls of wrath, which all represent judgment. So again, the tent of witness in heaven is opened, judgment comes. Now in 19, verse 11, heaven opens and what happens? Christ, the victorious king who is the judge, emerges. And this is the most clear picture that we have so far in Revelation of Jesus judging. Christ the conqueror is leading the way in final judgment here. He is not merely unsealing a scroll. He is not assumed to be present as final judgment occurs the way that we see in in some of the other cycles. No, he is appearing at the site of final battle. He is personally seeing to the demise of his enemies. And as he appears, John associates him with four names. Two of the names he is called, two of them are written. And they'll alternate as we go. A called one, a written one, a called one, a written one. And so we start with the first name that he is called, which is Faithful and True. And so if you're taking notes tonight, that's number one. Christ the victor is faithful and true. He's faithful because he has kept his promises to us as his people. He kept the promise of being the long-awaited Messiah by coming and being born of a virgin and living a perfect life and never sinning, not even once, not in thought, not in word, not in action. He kept his promises by being the long-awaited Redeemer who died on the cross for his people. He kept his promises by taking up his life again as he resurrected from the grave, a life no one took from him but that he laid down. He kept his promise by ascending to heaven and then giving the Holy Spirit to the church. He's kept every promise as the faithful one. And one day, the faithful one will return and he will keep his promise by bringing justice to creation and he will fulfill every promise that he has ever made to his people fully and finally. Now the world laughs at this idea. They say it's ridiculous, God doesn't exist. 
right? They just write him out of the equation altogether, or they say that, well, if God does exist, I'm sure he's not so concerned with my life and what I do. He's not going to judge me for my, my minor picadillos. Or he's slack regarding his promises. He's forgotten. But Peter tells us that this is not the case. 2 Peter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The faithful king will keep his promises. The earth will be judged and those who live on it. But as he judges the earth, he will also be saving his people. Because he's faithful to bring justice and he is faithful to keep his promise of redemption. But the title of faithful has a partner. Jesus is also called true, faithful and true. Meaning that he is the embodiment of truth. Jesus is filled with grace and truth. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When He describes Himself to His disciples in John 14, He says that He is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but through Him. As the one who is called true, He cannot, he does not, and he will not lie. Everything that he said is true and it will come to pass. He has written history from the end. And everything that he has written from before time in the end, all the way back to the beginning, it is going to come to pass. And as the truth, he is opposed to all falsehood and he will lay the sword of his mouth to anyone who stands with falsehood. The faithful and the true. This is how you know him if you're a Christian. This is how you know him if you are a part of the church. This is your experience. He has kept all of his promises to you. He's not failed on a single one that he has made to you. He has showered you with his truth. He's doing it right now as we speak. He has never let you down. He's not going to let you down in the end either. We think of a thousand reasons to complain, but we should stop every one of them. We should think of all the thousands of ways that God has been faithful and He has been true to us and He has kept His word to us. Jesus is faithful and true. Secondly, we have the first name that is written. So He's called faithful and true. And the first name written is in verse 12. And oddly, it's a name that nobody knows. You see that there. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. It's reminiscent of Revelation 2.17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This time it's not a name that's being given out. It's a written name that just belongs to Jesus. It's his. And nobody knows it but him. And this shows us two things. This name shows us, on one hand, that Jesus Christ is incomprehensible. You you can't fully comprehend him. 
and who He is. This God is beyond your comprehension, the comprehension of your finite, pea-sized little brain, right? That He is incomprehensible. And on the other hand, it tells us that He is authoritative, that He has unmatched authority. So number two tonight, Christ the victor is incomprehensible and authoritative. The fact that nobody knows this name except him stunts any attempt that any theologian or any scholar could make in saying they know everything that there is to know about Jesus Christ. It simply isn't possible. There's a guy named Alexander Strauch who's really good when it comes to like church government, church polity, and uh, he's got a great book about uh, you know restoring eldership or pastorship in the church and pastoral authority in the church, and everybody loves this guy, and he has famously read every book written in the English language about deacons. Famously, he has done this. Like, he actually has done this. The man has read every book in the English language about deacons. And so maybe Alexander Strout could say, I know everything there is to know about deacons. That's great. You've learned everything there is to learn about this one corner of the Word of God. But when you think about everything else there is to know in the Word of God, this man spent his whole life learning just about deacons, right? And he's just scratched the surface on Jesus. You can spend your whole life saying, I'm just going to learn about the book of Romans. I'm not even doing the whole thing. It's just Romans 8. I'm going to be an expert on Romans 8 for the rest of my life. And you can know more than anybody else on the earth about Romans 8. And the Lord Jesus Christ will still be incomprehensible to you. He is beyond your ability to fully comprehend Him. You could say, I'm going all in on Christology. I'm going to study Christ and the person of Christ for the rest of my life. He's still going to be incomprehensible to you. That doesn't mean you can't know Him. Right? I, I don't know everything there is to know about my wife, but I do know my wife. And so we're not going to say that you can't know him because he's incomprehensible. He has revealed himself to us in his word. He has provided everything we need to be saved and to live a godly life unto death. But you have not figured him out. Here's Joel Beakey talking about this. He says, so Christ is coming to a world, talking about his second coming. Christ is coming to a world that thinks it has the measure of him. He is coming to churches, theologians, thinkers and philosophers who have written books about him and made pronouncements about him but the one who is coming is the one who has a name that no one fully knows incomprehensible the name that no one speaks to um, or the name that no one knows it speaks to more than just the incomprehensibility of christ it also speaks to his authority in the ancient world's to know another person's name was to exercise a level of control over them. So, for example, in Genesis 32, when Jacob wrestles with God, God will not give his name to Jacob. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. He gave him his blessing, but he wasn't giving him his name. Jacob wasn't going to have authority over God. In the same way, when Samson's parents meet the angel of the Lord, they won his name. They're not going to get his name because Samson's parents aren't going to have authority over the angel of the Lord. For Jesus to have a name that nobody knows here on the final battlefield is for him to be beyond the control of any competing authority. No one possesses his authority. He stands alone. No one can compete with his authority. Nobody even comes close. And that's why he has a name that nobody knows but him. There's nobody else we can say this about. 
Nobody else and nothing else is beyond the ability of comprehension in the way that Christ is. And no one else and nothing else has the authority of the one who is faithful and true. And so, he is faithful and true. He is incomprehensible and authoritative. Let's keep going. You see the third name of Christ introduced in this passage. Like faithful and true, this is a name that he is called. In verse 13, the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And so number three tonight, Christ the victor is the Word of God. Christ the victor is the Word of God. Christ being the Word is not new to John's writing. This is actually how the Gospel begins, right? The Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. For the Greeks, the word logos which translates to word in English. So when you see there in John 1, 1 through 3, you see logos. Uh, that's the Greek word. That, or you see word, logos is the Greek word behind it that translates to word. For the Greeks, the logos was the impersonal force behind all of life. John takes the word and he commandeers it to explain who Jesus is and to say there's not an impersonal force behind all of life, No. There's a very personal force behind all of life. It's the fullness of God in a person. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's explaining. Jim Hamilton commenting on this says, The Word, talking about Jesus, The Word is the communication of the Father. He is the rational force of fatherly fulsomeness overflowing in infinite goodness. That Word was no impersonal force but a full person alongside the Father at the principal moment of all things. The Word was both with God and was God. Was and with. What God was, the Word was. The Word was God and the Word was with God. Co-equal, indistinguishable, yet distinct. This is who Christ is. He is the Word. He is the one who was with God. He is the one who is God. Co-equal with the Father. You can't distinguish between the two, and yet, the Father and the Son are distinct. His identity as the Word is demonstrated in His eyes that are like a flame of fire in verse 12. His burning eyes shows how He sees in judgment through the external. Right, You and I, we, we look at people and we really can't weigh the thoughts and intentions of their hearts out. We try to do that. It's actually a very arrogant thing for us to try to do. Well, I think they're thinking this and I think that they're thinking this. and We don't know what they're thinking. You can't weigh out somebody's thoughts and some, the intentions of somebody's heart. Ultimately, you can really only judge their actions, right? what they say and what they do. But the Lord is beyond that in His ability to see and understand right? because He has perfect knowledge of all things including your life he knows you better than you and so his burning eyes see right past the external and sees the thoughts sees the intentions sees the motives sees what's right down there in the hallways of your heart hebrews 4 12 tells us that the word of god is this way for the word of god is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit of joints and of marrow discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. 
You say, yeah, but that's about the Bible, right? That's about the written word of God. And I would say, yes, that is how we understand that text. But you can't separate the word from the word. This is his revelation of himself. And the word is the revelation of the Father. You can't separate the word from the word. When Jesus, the word, comes, he will judge by the word. This is why, in verse 15, his mouth has a sharp sword coming out of it. Because Christ, the word, will judge with the word. It will be his standard. God's revelation is his standard that he will judge by. So understanding Jesus in this way, understanding that he is the word of God, combined with the name that nobody knows, I think it tells us that the Lord Jesus who is returning, He is both transcendent and He is imminent. He is this mysterious name that the greatest of scholars and theologians do not know. And what that shows is that you can study and you can study and you can study, but He is above us and He is beyond us. And yet He's also the Word of God. He is the full revelation of who God is in a person and was born in our backyard, which tells us that he is near to us. So on one hand, he is above and beyond who we are, but on the other hand, he's imminent. He's right beside us. He's near to us. He tabernacles with us. And we hold these things in tension as believers. The, the Jesus who is going to return, he is your closest friend and brother. But at the same time, the Jesus who is going to return is the one who spoke the oceans into existence. And you don't mess with them. You don't play with them. You come to him, you love him. His yoke is easy, his burden is light. But you don't test him. You, you don't look him in the eye and shake your fist at him. He is imminent, he is near, but he is also transcendent and he is above and beyond. The faithful and the true, the name that no one knows, the word of God. What, what these names have done for us, it's like we're scaling up the, the mountain of God's majesty with each name. With each name, we have a new foothold, a new handhold, and we're working our way up the mountain. But when you get to verse 16, which is where we spend the rest of our time tonight, we have reached the summit. In verse 16, Jesus holds a title that only he can claim. Number four, Christ the victor is King of kings and Lord of lords. And you say, well, I feel like we haven't gotten to very much of this passage. Well, it's because most of the passage is tied to these names here. This title. King of kings and Lord of lords. All over this text, you see the absolute sovereignty of Christ. The majesty of Christ. You see it in how He looks. How He appears. You see it in what He does and in how He acts. But it's all here. Jesus was called the Lord of Lords and King of Kings back in Revelation 17. They will make war on the Lamb and the Lamb will conquer them for He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And those with Him are called chosen and faithful. In that passage, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings will overcome the beast. He will overcome the kings who have allied themselves with the beast. That's the promise of Revelation 17, 14. And now as you get to chapter 19, we're seeing it come to pass. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords has reappeared with His chosen and His faithful. He has many diadems on His head in verse 12, showing His royalty, showing He is the King of Kings. 
And it is time for him once and for all to exercise his superiority over every other ruler in history, whether in earth or in heaven. It is time for the final war to commence. It is time for the victory of King Jesus. He shows his supremacy, first of all, by showing up on a white horse in verse 11. He's riding on a white horse. In ancient times, rulers would come back from battle on a white charger, on a white steed. And it was a sign of victory after the battle. But notice here that as the battle is about to commence, Jesus rides in on a white horse. Pre-battle. He shows up at the Super Bowl wearing the championship shirt, All right, to put it in our language. And that is because his victory is not in question. He's not going to keep the white horse in a stable and say, well, let's see how this works out. Not necessary. He can show up on the white horse because he's the victor before the battle even begins. It's done. It's sealed. As he arrives on the white horse, he arrives in righteousness. He's going to judge and he's going to make war. It's a twofold judgment because he's going to resurrect both believers and unbelievers So it will be a judgment that is both saving and damning for the sheep of his pasture whose sin has been atoned for by the conquering lamb. It's a judgment unto salvation. When when we stand before God as Christians in final judgment, our sin has already been taken care of. It's It's already been punished at Calvary. And, and we have shown, if, if we are, are, are persevering unto death, persevering unto the end, what we're showing is that we have true salvation. We're not earning our salvation with our perseverance, but by persevering unto the end, we're showing that truly we are saved people, truly we are people who have had uh, Jesus' blood applied to us and that our sins have been covered and cast as far as the east is from the west. It will be a saving judgment in the end because of what Christ has already done. But for goats, for those who have remained proud in their hearts for those who have planted their feet in the ground and they have stood in opposition to the Son of God well this will be a judgment unto damnation Matthew 25 verses 32 and 33 this is Jesus talking before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on his left. And he'll do this separating with what? What will be his standard? It's not going to be your standard. That's what people think all the time, right? That's why they say things like, well, I'm sure that if, if, if there is a God in heaven, he's got better things to do than worry about you know, me looking at pornography. He's got better things to do than, than to worry about the feelings I've got in my heart, to worry about the actions I've taken in my life. I mean, he's got world wars to tend to, right? He's got a Russian-Ukraine war to tend to. He doesn't care about what's going on with me. That's, that's your standard. That's how you think the world should be run. Thankfully, God's a God of justice. He doesn't let any injustice go unpunished. And so he will take his perfect righteous standard and he will judge with that in the end. And that is the sword in verse 15 you see protruding from the mouth of Christ. It shows how powerful and how effective the words of Christ, the standard of Christ is to judge the nations. 
Isaiah foretold the Messiah would have this power. Isaiah in Isaiah 49 said, He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me like a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. Paul tells us that the man of lawlessness, who is the Antichrist, the the final and worst version of the second beast, you see the second beast uh, get tossed into the lake of fire in verse 20. Paul talks about when that's going to happen. He talks about the death, the judgment of the man of lawlessness, of the false prophet, in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8, he says, And then the lawless one will be revealed. And again, I think that's the, the, the final Antichrist, the, the worst version of the, the false prophet, the culmination of all the false prophets before him, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. He will kill the man of lawlessness with the breath of his mouth, with the sword coming from his mouth, with his word. That is what he will kill the man of lawlessness with. This is what he will judge his enemies with. Judgment imagery continues in verse 13. Notice that he's got uh, clothes that are, uh, that are dipped in blood. Right, The robe that he wears is dipped in blood. That's not his blood. That's a lot of people will read that and they'll think, oh, this is the Lord Jesus, he's got, he's got a little blood on his, on his uh, robe to show that he is the, the lamb that dies for sin and atones for sin, and so there's a little bit of his blood there to remind us of it. That's not what this is. This is not Christ in his humiliation. His blood was on his clothes in his humiliation as he died for our sin on the cross, and those clothes are gone here. All right, they're, they're divided up and gambled away, just as it was prophesied. What he's wearing here, it's not clothes of humiliation. These are the clothes of his triumphant return. It's not his blood. It's the blood of those that he brings judgment against. You say, well, how do you know that? Because it's a picture taken, like, like so many of the pictures in Revelation, it's a picture taken from the Old Testament, taken from Isaiah 63, where Yahweh is judging the Edomites, and he has their blood splattered on him. Why is your apparel red, and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I'll explain the winepress in a moment. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger, and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splatters my garments, and stained all my apparel. It's a heavy, heavy picture that we are getting from John, a heavy picture we're getting from Isaiah, but what it shows is how thorough the business of judgment will be at the hands of Christ. He is going to carry it out and he will not stop until it is done and it's not going to be pretty. Talk about the wine press in Isaiah 63, and we see the wine press language here in our Revelation 19 passage as well. The end of verse 15, he will tread the wine press of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. In ancient times, when grapes were harvested and then placed, uh, they would be placed into a container of wood or a container of stone, and that is what they called the treading floor. And the workers of the vineyard would then stomp on the grapes barefoot. 
allowing the juice to flow out of the grapes down into a basin. And that is the picture of judgment that God is giving us in this passage and in Isaiah 63. Is that He is treading the wine press. And who's in the wine press? Well, it's the grapes. And we learned in Revelation 14 that the grape harvest refers to the unbelieving. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And so in Isaiah 63... The Lord is treading the wine press, and the question that's asked of him is, "Hey, why do you have why do you have the the red on your your clothes? Is is it from the wine press? You look like you're somebody's been treading a wine press." And God's answer is, "I have, but it's not grapes. It's it's people. It's people who stand against me, who oppose me. They're being tread upon in judgment, and that's the same picture we're getting here. That Jesus is going to tread the wine press. It's not going to be grapes. The grapes are symbolic." We're talking about the judgment of human beings, of souls who have been haughty, who have been proud, who have refused to be loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ, have refused His Word, have called His Word a lie, and have accepted their own lies as truth. And here in chapter 19, the Lord has removed His warrior sandals, and He is treading the grapes. Verse 15, more judgment imagery. He rules the nations with a rod of iron as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And this is nothing more or less than what was promised to him in Psalm 2, verses 8 and 9. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. He will shatter the rebellious nations of the earth in judgment. See, every nation will be represented in the kingdom of God. I believe that. Matthew 24, 14 says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. One of the major reasons I believe Jesus is not going to return tomorrow is because the gospel has not reached every shore yet. And I don't just think that the gospel is going to reach every shore. I actually think that there is going to be a multitude of believers from each people group. It's going to be a significant amount of of, uh, believers that are going to be from each people group, coming as a remnant of that people group uh, into the kingdom, into the new earth. So each nation will be represented in the wheat harvest, but each nation will also be represented in the grape harvest. Each each nation will have representation in the lot of goats that will receive wrath in the final judgment. And when Jesus comes against them in judgment, it will be just. He will right every wrong. He will bring justice for every horrible deed. And by the way, this is why you and I don't take vengeance into our own hands as believers. We trust in the Lord to bring vengeance in the end. Repay no one evil for evil, Romans 12 says, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We don't need to go out and seek revenge. The Lord will have his day, and people will have their day in court with God. 
leave the vengeance to him and leave the vindication of his name to him. You serve him here in humility and you leave the justice to the Lord. See, the reason that we can have that attitude as Christians is because we understand the full story. God purposed for Adam to rule the nations, right? To rule the world. But he failed. He broke covenant with God and his transgression brought death into the world and all humanity fell with him. This is Romans 5.12. But God had a plan to glorify himself by sending his son Jesus. Jesus is the second Adam. Until Paul refers to him in Romans 5. And the second Adam upholds the covenant that the first Adam failed in. He never sins. And then he goes and he dies on the cross bearing the sins of the nations and he rises again and he ascends on high and one day he will return and he will receive the inheritance promised to him by the Father in Psalm 2. He will shatter the rebellious nations. And then the second Adam will fulfill the purpose that the first Adam could not. He will rule the world with a rod of iron. And all who love him will bow their knee and will rejoice in the reign of their king forever. But all who do not love him will be judged as he shatters the nations with his rod of iron. And then finally we see the king of kings and the lord of lords in action in the final battle. He has the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, following him on white horses there in verse 14. Some believe these are angels. I think these are Christians. Not only because in chapter 17, when he's described as the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, that the the chosen and the faithful are with them, but also because of what we saw last week in verse 8, as the bride of Christ is being described It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And so here in verse 14, you see that they're arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. I don't see any reason not to think it's the same bride from earlier in the chapter, now riding with her groom to battle. His victory is going to be her victory. There's an angel who stands in the sun calling out to the birds who fly overhead in verse 17 and what he's giving out is a dinner invitation. And it's the second dinner invitation that's given out in Revelation 19. If you remember last week in verse 9, an angel said there, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So that was one dinner invitation. To be one of those invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. What a glorious and gracious thing that is. But the second dinner invitation is not one that you want to be a part of. It's actually not for people. It's for animals. It's for the birds of death. It's for the vultures and the ravens to circle up and to feast on the flesh of kings and captains and mighty men and horses and riders and the flesh of all men, free and slave, great and small. Anybody who has planted their feet in opposition to the King of Kings, you don't want to be there for that meal. If you're there for that meal, it means you were dead on the battlefield as an opponent of Christ. This invitation to the birds comes before the battle even happens. It anticipates that Jesus is going to win, just like his white horse anticipates that he's going to win. 
Usually, you know, my dad always used to say that if you're laying around in the yard and you see some buzzards start to gather, you should probably get up and do something else, right? Uh, Usually, birds gather when something is dead or dying. Well, here, they're invited before the battle even takes place. Because, again, the fate has been sealed from before time. There is no chance this is going any way but victory for Christ and defeat for his opposition. And so the birds are there before the fight even occurs. The words of the angels saying, hey, birds of death, gather up, is very reminiscent to what David says before he fights Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. It's very similar what the angel says here in Revelation 19, except that now we have Jesus, the better David, on the battlefield coming to slay all of his enemies. And in verse 19, the final battle is taking place. The beast is there representing every evil nation state that has ever opposed the church, that has ever persecuted the Lord's bride. All the kings that have aligned themselves with the beast is there. We know that the second beast, the false prophet, is there because he's going to get thrown into the lake of fire. Swords are drawn. They're ready to take on the king, ready to take on his army. This is it. It's Armageddon. It's the final war. It's a war that was prophesied by Ezekiel in Ezekiel 39. As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to the birds of every sort and to all the beasts of the field. Does this sound familiar? Assemble and come. Gather from all around to the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you, a great sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel, and you shall eat, the fle- uh, eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, and of he-goats, of bulls, all of them fat beasts of Bashan. And you shall eat fat till you are filled and drink blood till you are drunk at the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you. And you shall be filled at my table with horses and charioteers, with mighty men and all kinds of warriors, declares the Lord. That prophecy in Ezekiel 39 comes in a prophecy against Gog and Magog. When we get another angle of the final battle in chapter 20, this final battle those names will be used explicitly. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. The only difference is when we get to chapter 20, we're going to get to see the fullness of the battle because we will have the joy of watching the dragon finally be tossed into the lake of fire. But here in chapter 19, it's just the beast and the false prophet. They are tossed into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. That is eternal hell. They're defeated. Thrown into a prison made for them. And notice there's not really a battle, is it? The battle lines are drawn. We're all ready to go. Here we go. Big fight. And then the Antichrist, mouthpiece, the beast... Just tossed into the lake of fire alive. It's over before it starts. Just, you know, get out of here. And then all the rest, the kings of the earth and all those who dwell in the earth who oppose the Lord of Lords, they are slain by the word of the king and then the birds eat 
just as Ezekiel promised. And that's it. It's over. Seven years of tribulation have come to an end. The three and a half days are over. The three and a half years or the 42 months or the 1260 days have drawn to a close. The age of a witness is done. The seals have been opened. The trumpets have sounded. The bowls have been poured out. And it is the end. The sixth cycle is over. We only have one set of replays left before we get to see our eternal home. But as I close up tonight, I just want to say this. Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs to it and is safe. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs to it and is safe. We have heard the names of our Lord tonight, faithful and true. The Word of God, incomprehensible, authoritative Messiah, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the written and called names of the one who is seated on the white horse. And my simple question to you tonight as we leave, my question to those who are watching on the live stream tonight or who are listening to this on the podcast later on, the question is, are His names your tower of refuge? Do you run to Him and find your safety? Many will seek refuge in the different names that Satan offers up as counterfeit shelters. Many will come and submit to the beast. They'll bow down to Caesar as the Lord so they can buy and sell in the marketplace. Many will listen to the false prophet who performs signs and wonders and they'll be deceived into taking the mark. They will eat up worldly philosophies that promise freedom but only deliver bondage. Many will come and get in bed with Babylon, believing that she will love them as long as they can pay with their soul. But what we've seen over the last few weeks is that all of these names will be destroyed by fire in the end. Will be destroyed by the breath of His mouth, by the word of the Lord in the end. There's no shelter in what the dragon offers. There's no shelter to be found in the beast or in the second beast or in Babylon. There's no shelter in the dragon. The only shelter to be found is in the name of the Lord. And so I just call on you tonight to run to Him, to turn from your sin, and to believe in the name of Jesus Christ. Submit to His Word. Submit to Him as King of kings and Lord of lords, and He will be faithful and true to you unto the end. Turn to Jesus. His name is a strong tower. Let it be your refuge. Father, I thank you for your son. And I pray that as we are leaving tonight, that we would walk out in victory, knowing that the victory of the Lamb belongs to the bride. That those invited to the marriage supper are those who will ride with him in victory. We thank you that the final battle won't be much of a battle, that victory is sealed, that it is done, that you are going to win and your people will win with you. Jesus, help us to remember these things. What have we to dread if these things are true? And the answer is nothing. Nothing. And so I pray that we would be a dreadless people, a fearless people, and that our only fear would be a healthy reverence of the one who sits on the white horse. Help us, Lord, to love you. And to show our loyalty to you, our devotion to you and how we live. And I pray that if anyone here does not know the names of Christ as their strong tower, that they would find refuge in him tonight. 
And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.